I feel like we need to applaud Austin for reading through that list. He let out a sigh after like Rehoboam, like, like it was almost there. Um, let's pray and we'll consider this passage together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. There's good news right here. We pray then for eyes to see it, ears to hear it, a mind to understand it, a heart to believe it and feel it, so that we might come out of this time hearing and seeing and understanding and believing and therefore treasuring Jesus Christ more as we leave here than when we came in. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, being that it is after Thanksgiving, and if you walk into a store now, you see the lights everywhere, and Starbucks has its red uh, cups, and trees are out, and lights are being put out, we have entered Christmas season. And so what we thought we would do is that uh, we would pause on our study of the book of Acts. We left Paul right at the beginning of Missionary Journey 3. He's about to enter into the city of Ephesus. And so we'll pick that up again in the new year. And we wanted to do over the next few weeks is give ourselves to considering the birth of Jesus. And so what we want to do over this Advent season, over the next few weeks, is to consider some of the texts that are pertinent to the Christmas story, and particularly even consider the holy family that surrounds Jesus. As we consider to us a son is given, we want to consider who is some of this us? Who are some of the people to whom Jesus was given? And in particular, we want to consider Christmas from the point of view of Jesus' dad, as we'll do, Jesus' mom, as we'll do, Jesus' cousin, as we'll do. And this week, we start even by considering Jesus' grandparents. To do that, we look at the very first page of the New Testament. The first page of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, and Matthew's telling of the Christmas story starts, as you heard, a bit odd, meaning he doesn't tell us the stories of Christmas we're familiar with. He doesn't tell us about the shepherds watching their flocks by night. He doesn't start with telling us about the three kings from Orient Ar. He doesn't tell us about the angels heard on high singing Gloria. He tells us Instead, it seems like he logged onto Ancestry.com, printed out Jesus' family tree, and begins with that. We get this long list of some 40-odd names, half of which we can't pronounce, and it's the first chapter of the New Testament, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're here, and you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, new to church, you would be right to assume this is a very odd way to start a book. It's sort of like that list of opening credits when a movie's about to begin, and you get the list of names of who the producer and the, the director is and some of the star actors, and what do you do with that? You fast forward through that so that you could get to the movie, right? That's what you do with the opening credits. In the same way, I want you to know the secret would be, even if you're new to Christianity, us who are Christians, we do the same thing. We get to a passage like Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, and we fast forward through that because it's a long list of weird names, and 18 is where the action starts. And so the question we want to ask is, as Matthew's starting to tell us the story of Jesus, and particularly the Christmas story, why does he start here? And moreover, what are we supposed to learn from it? And I want to suggest to us this morning that essentially in this list, in 1 through 17, in this 40-odd names or so, you will find the basics of Christianity right here. And essentially in this genealogy, the basics of the Christian faith. And this morning, I want us to consider four things from Jesus' family tree. 
Here's the first. Christmas offers us a new beginning. The first thing I want you to see from Matthew 1 is that Christmas, or more, more appropriately, Jesus, offers us a new beginning. Remember with me where we are. Matthew 1 comes after 400 years of silence. Meaning when Malachi is finished and the Old Testament, the first half of our Bibles, is done, for 400 years, four centuries, there's nothing from heaven. No voice, no miracle, no angels, no messengers, no prophets, no signs, no wonders. It's like heaven is silent for 400 years. And then you get the first sentence of the New Testament, breaking that silence. Matthew 1 verse 1 reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy, the book of the beginnings. You know, in the original language, it's literally translated the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. That is that Matthew begins his account in a way that takes you back all the way to the beginning and makes you think of the very first book of the Bible. Matthew's writing this gospel account to people who he knows, many of whom will be Jewish, many of whom will read this, and he starts in a way that has you thinking from the very first words of the first book of the whole Bible. Meaning, he's saying essentially, we have here any Jewish reader who picked up Matthew 1 and read the Genesis of Jesus Christ would have immediately thought we have here essentially a new Genesis, a, another beginning. Essentially, it's almost as if, if Genesis 1 is God, through the word of God, made the world, then Matthew 1 is essentially God, through the word of God, made flesh, remade the world. Genesis 1 is creation. Matthew 1 is almost then new creation. Jesus is here as God's agent to renew the world, to remake the world. And in Jesus then, the world gets a new Genesis. The world gets a new beginning, a new start. You think of that. You think of even the songs we sing at this time. As the lyrics fly off your mouth or fall onto your ears through this season, would you sing and think of the lofty declarations we sing at Christmas time? We sing things like, joy to the world. You think of that. One baby born in the Middle East is joy to the whole world. I mean, what other baby born is announced to the whole world as pertinent to the entire planet, to every nation and every people? One child is born, and we declare joy to the world. Joy to the world. And then we sing, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We sing things like, no more let sorrows grow or thorns grow, because he comes to bring blessings as far as the curse is found. Meaning the Bible's declaration is sin came into the world, thorns and sin extended to the whole world, and his birth has meant new things, new beginnings, a genesis for the whole world. Let the whole earth receive her king. We sing songs like, O Holy Night, and when we sing it this season, hear the lofty grandeur of what we're singing. We sing things like, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. 
And the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and more glorious morn. That is, this is pertinent to the whole world. This is a genesis for everything. The entire cosmos can be renewed. The birth of this one child offers a new beginning for the whole world. He's the fulfillment of everything the prophets were saying. With his birth, it can mean justice for the world. It can mean shalom for the world. It can mean the curse is gone and blessing comes for the whole world. And what I simply want you to hear at the beginning here is that what's true at the macro level for the whole world, this Christmas is true for you at the micro level for you as an individual. Meaning Christmas offers you a new start. Christmas offers you a new beginning. This is particularly the time of the year where we get ready for new starts, to start over again. And I'm suggesting to us this morning, Christmas offers us something better than January 1. January 1 offers you a chance to make new resolutions for a new start, for a new you. Well, Christmas offers something January 1 cannot because Christmas offers you a start so fresh, so new, the Bible even calls it being born again. That you could have such a newness of life that the best way to describe it is you are born again. You're not even just given another shot. You are born again. The, the implication then, the scripture's message to us would be, we are spiritually dead people. By nature, we are spiritually dead. Jesus was speaking with a man named Nicodemus once. And this man, Nicodemus, was a religious man, a moral man, a good man. He had kept the law. He had done everything right. And Jesus looked this man in the face and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That means that Nicodemus needed more than January 1. He needed more than another resolve to do better again. He needed a new beginning, a genesis. He needed to be born again. That means that what he needed was not new religion. It's amazing. Even Nicodemus in that conversation says, Jesus, I know that you've come from God. Would you catch that? He says to Jesus, I know you've come from God. And still Jesus looked at him and said, you must be born again. Meaning it was not even enough to declare that Jesus has come from God. It's not enough to affirm that Jesus is supernatural. Something supernatural had to happen inside Nicodemus. He needed a new beginning. And the scriptures would come to us and say to us, through Jesus Christ, you can be born again. You can have a new creation within you. That is the old heart of stone that is indifferent to God, that is bored of Jesus, can be replaced with a heart of flesh that beats with living love and treasures Jesus Christ over and above all things. Christmas means a new genesis for the world, a new genesis, a new start even for you. Second, Christmas, or rather than that, Jesus is good news. Matthew is showing us in chapter 1 that Jesus is good news. Christmas is good news. One author points it out this way. He says, Matthew, if you notice, doesn't begin Matthew 1 verse 1 by saying, once upon a time. He doesn't start the way that good legends start, good myths start, good fairy tales start. He doesn't start the way that good fables with good morals for you to have start. Instead, Matthew starts 
with a genealogy, with a list of real-life flesh-and-blood human beings and introduces Jesus then as a real man in real time, in real space, in this real planet, in real history. Would you hear that? Jesus is not introduced as myth or legend or fable or a figure from which we are to draw good lessons. Instead, Matthew introduces him as a man in history, a man of history, because for Christianity, the historicity of Jesus is everything. That he is real, that he really came from this line, born to these real people, matters for us. That's what sets him apart from everyone else and everything else. I had an electrician come to the house yesterday, and we got to talking. And during the conversation, we started talking about God, and we started talking about what we believe. And I heard from him what you have heard a thousand times from a thousand people. He said to me, I definitely believe in God. And he said, and I believe, essentially, all the religions get us to that God. And he said, at the end of the day, all the religions teach us we must be good people. All the religions teach us that we should not steal and do good and share with the poor. And I try to do that. And no matter what religion you're in, they all teach you to be good to get to God. And here, Matthew 1 is trying to do what I tried to do with him yesterday, trying to explain to us that is exactly where and how Christianity is different. It's exactly here because all the great religions will tell you what you need to do. Essentially, one author put it as, it's giving us great advice, but Christianity is not great advice, it's great news. There's a difference. All the religions would tell us, here is the way, walk in it. If you went to Buddhism, here is the eightfold path, walk in this way. If you went to Islam, here are the five pillars of truth. Do these foundational acts and you will get to God. Every one of these religions and their founders tell you, here is the way, walk in it. Here is the truth, believe it. Here is the life or the way to life to get it. And Jesus Christ is the founder that comes and it's different because in those other religions, the founders don't matter as much because what they've come is to show you what you should do. But in Christianity, the founder is everything because the founder of Christianity did not come to teach us what to do, but came to do something for us. It's the difference between good advice and good news. Good advice is here's what you should do to get to God. Good news is here's what God has done to get to you. And that's what Christianity offers. That's what Jesus offers. That's what Christmas offers. It is not good advice for you in this season. To make you a good little boy or a good little girl, to be more nice than naughty, Christianity is good news. A report of what has happened. Jesus came to do something. He didn't come primarily even to teach us to do something. Would you hear that? Christianity isn't even the good news that Jesus came to teach us how to live. Christianity is the good news of what Jesus came to do for us. What he came to do for us. And the real history, real person on this real planet, Jesus came to do something for us. And even just that, would you think of that? The phrase there is, he came. I didn't come onto this planet. I was born here. And, and my birth was the beginning of my existence. 
But the language of he came was because he had an existence before and came to this planet. In fact, if you read how Matthew says the last phrase of that genealogy, if you look at when he introduces Jesus all the way until then, it's so-and-so had a son who had a son who had a son, and his language changes when he gets to Jesus. Jesus born of Mary. So as to say, he didn't come like the other sons came. This is to remind us he was born of the Holy Spirit in the virgin womb. He came to this planet. And what did this Jesus come to do? If you ask Jesus, he would tell you. It's, a, it's the verse we actually read during our giving prayer today. For the Son of Man came. Why? Why did Jesus say he came? He said not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came. Jesus, why did you come? From his own mouth, he would say, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He is the one person who was born explicitly to die. He had come solely to die, principally to die, first and foremost to die. He had come to die. For the Son of Man came to give his life. To give his life as a ransom for many. That is to pay what you owed. To pay the debt for you. To buy you. To purchase your salvation. He came for that. This is why he came. He came not to teach us to do something, but to do something for us. And if you take in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This man of real history lived 33 years. And yet the great sum of the gospel accounts focuses essentially on the last three years of his life and essentially even the last week of his life. What biography do you know that you read and essentially the bulk of it is the last seven days of that person's life? And yet Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John focus not, they give one chapter perhaps to his birth. They give no mention of his childhood, essentially except a verse here in Luke or there. They, they summarize three years of life and then they slow down when you get to seven days before his death. Because essentially, as one scholar put it, it's almost like the Gospels are a prologue to his death. He had come to die. Jesus Christ is not for us good advice. He's good news of what he had come not to teach us to do, but to do for us. Third, Christmas is what we've been waiting for. In Matthew 1, he's showing us that Jesus offers us a new genesis, a new beginning. He's declaring to us that Jesus is good news, a real person in history who came to do something for us. Third, he's showing us that Jesus is what we've been waiting for. Matthew doesn't get through his first sentence without telling us exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. Meaning there's no build-up in Matthew's account, no suspense, no drama, no sort of keep it behind his back and keep you guessing. He blurts out in the first sentence, Jesus is the Christ. Matthew would have been horrible at keeping a secret. Matthew would have just said right out of the beginning, he's the Christ, that's who he is, that's who Jesus is. And so from the first line, he wants you to know this is the genesis of Jesus Christ. And then why he gives us this genealogy is partly because he wants to show us that Jesus has the right lineage to be the Christ. He's giving us this list of 40 names to show us that Jesus is the rightful heir, has the right pedigree, has the right family tree, has a legitimate claim 
to be believed in as the Messiah, as the Christ. If you think about this list, you get some 40 names that essentially traces it all the way back to two names at the top. Do you notice at the beginning? There's, there's a heading over the whole thing. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You get two names at the heading, and then from there it says, Abraham had so-and-so, who had so-and-so, who had so-and-so. Two names at the top. Why those two names? Because Matthew's doing something. Matthew's showing us something. He points to those two names in particular because everyone in Israel knew this is the one we're waiting for. The Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, the awaited one, the promised one. The promised one was promised first to Abraham. Abraham was told in Genesis, Abraham, you have no children, but I promise you're going to have offspring. And specifically, the promise was, you're going to have an offspring, and through that offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to bless you with offspring so that through that offspring, all the families of the earth, all the nations, the whole world will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And so whoever this one is that we're waiting for, he's the hope of the blessings of the whole world. He's the hope of the world. And then the promise begins, and you start waiting for the one promised to Abraham, the offspring. But then the promise gets reiterated to David. Because when David comes, the promise comes. David says, David's this great king. He has this moment where he wants to build God a house. If you know the story, he looks outside his palace house, and he looks and sees that God is dwelling in a, in a tent, a tabernacle. And he says, how is it that I have a palace and God lives in a tent? And he says, I'm going to build God a house. And God comes to him and he says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And that is, I'm going to build you a line that will be an everlasting line. And the promise comes that there will be a son of David who sits on the throne, who rules and reigns forever. He will be Israel's king. And the one we're waiting for then the Messiah we're looking for, the one the world is waiting for, is Israel's Messiah and the world's hope. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. We're waiting, Israel would say, for century after century, since Abraham and the generations that have come, son after son after son, David and then son after son, we're waiting for the son of David, the son of Abraham, who will be Israel's king and the world's hope. And Matthew 1 is essentially a birth announcement to the whole world saying, he's come. He's here. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the one the world has been waiting for. And I want you to hear, at this Christmas, what is offered at the macro level to the whole world is offered at the micro level to you individually. And I want to say to you, Jesus is the one you have been waiting for. Jesus is the one, whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus is, the Bible would declare to you, the one that your soul has been waiting for. Remember some time ago, we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, and some of you would say, please don't remind me, that was a depressing 13 weeks. We preached through the book of Ecclesiastes, which was one of my favorite series ever. But in that, in that series, do you remember Solomon? who was wealthier and wiser, had more resources than anyone on the planet who has ever lived. Solomon, who earned more in one day's party than you and I will in an entire lifetime. Solomon, who blew on one day what you and I won't earn after a hundred lifetimes. 
Do you remember in Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon said, I had chased everything under the sun looking for satisfaction. And do you remember Solomon's list? Solomon had gone after wine and women and work and wealth and wisdom. He pursued it all with all the vigor, with all the might, with all the wisdom and all the wealth that anyone in the world has ever had. And after giving himself over to everything that you could possibly want, he says in in chapter 2, I held back nothing that my eyes saw that I wanted. After he had dabbled in everything the world had to offer, do you remember his conclusion? Hevel, hevel, it's all hevel. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, it's all meaningless. As in, Solomon had drank an ocean of salt water and found his soul still thirsty. That nothing he had dabbled in, nothing he had tried, had met the longing of his heart. He had consumed it all, tried it all, experimented it all, and everything within him still longed for more, still wasn't satisfied. He still hadn't found what it was that he was looking for. And I want you to hear, no matter what the commercials tell you, no matter what the culture would tell us and frenzy us up at this time in particular, let me tell you about Christmas something you already know, which is that no matter what is under the tree this year, You are not going to unwrap anything this year where you'll open it and go, I never need anything again. You're not going to discover anything under a tree this year that's going to have your soul go, I could die in peace right now because I finally got exactly what my soul has wanted. No matter what is under the tree, you will drink it and find yourself thirsty again until next December 25. Because there is nothing under the sun that can satisfy the soul save one. Do you remember there's another story we tell at Christmas time? It's of an old man named Simeon. And if you remember the story of Simeon, Simeon is this old man who is waiting. And if you ask Simeon on a Monday morning, Simeon, what are you going to do today? Simeon would say to you, I'm going to do the same thing I do every single day. I'm going to wait for Israel's salvation. You see, Simeon had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the one, Israel's Messiah and the world's hope. And so he believed. And if you told Simeon, old Simeon, old and frail, oh, Simeon, it's been 400 years, 400 years since heaven said a word. There's been no angels, no visions, no sight, no messengers, no prophet. Heaven has been silent. Whatever you read in those books long ago, it's all, it's all fairy tale. Simeon would say, I have been told by the Holy Spirit that I will not die until I see the one. And Simeon walks into the temple one day, if you know the story, and all of a sudden he sees this couple holding a baby boy. The man's name is Joseph, the woman's name is Mary, and he goes up and the Holy Spirit tells him, this is the one. The one the world has been waiting for, Israel's Messiah and the world's hope. The blessing of all the nations and Israel's glory. Here's the one. And Simeon holds Jesus at that Christmas. And you know what Simeon says? I can die in peace. I never need anything again. Simeon had found in Christmas the one thing that met the deepest longings of his soul. He held that boy and he essentially said, you are what I have been waiting for my entire life. 
You're the one. Israel's hope, the world's blessing, and my salvation, and my deepest longing. And I'm telling you, I'm telling myself, there is no relationship, there is no friendship, there is no achievement, there is no accomplishment, there is no possession, there is nothing under the sun that you will acquire that will meet the deep need of your soul, that will not leave you thirsting for more, save one. Because Simeon held Jesus and he literally said, now I can depart in peace. I could die a happy man right now because I have seen the Lord's salvation and the light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel is right here in my hand and he is everything I have longed for. Christmas is shouting to you. You can have this season, right now, in this new beginning, this good news that the deepest longing of your heart can be met in Jesus Christ. Fourth and finally, Christmas means that Jesus came from sinners and Jesus came for sinners. The fourth thing that I would say that Matthew tells us in chapter 1 is that Jesus came from sinners and for sinners. See, Matthew's first readers, they would not have yawned through this list. They wouldn't have fast-forwarded to get to the action in verse 18. And that's because in Matthew's day, in Matthew's culture, on that side of the planet, a genealogy was sort of like a resume. In, in our culture, we're very individualistic. So, so we want to know, what did you do? What did you accomplish? Write it down on a piece of paper. That's how I know who you are and what you're worth. And so, for example, when we meet new people, one of the first questions we ask is, what do you do? Because what you do, what you accomplish, that's who you are. Can I tell you, on the other side of the planet, it doesn't work like that. I was thinking back. As I recall every conversation I've ever heard my parents have, every single conversation, they have never met a person and asked, what do you do? I've never heard it come from their mouth. Instead, the first question they ask is something like, transliterated would be almost like, what land are you from? Where's your land? And that leads to a conversation of family. And within five minutes, every Indian couple that I've ever seen my parents meet, within five minutes, they know each other's family and they're related within three and a half minutes, right? That's how it works. Because in that side of the world, who you are is who you're from. That's your resume. Where you come from, who you're connected with, what's your family name? That's the thing that mattered more than anything else in the world, is the honor of your family name. And so if you were putting forth your resume, what do you do with your resume? You hide the embarrassing parts and you highlight the flattering parts. If you're looking for the world to see who you are, you put the fact that you, you got this promotion, you hide the fact that you failed that class because you put forward your best. Well, in that side of the world, genealogies work the same exact way. You often hid and showed what you wanted to present who you were. Even in Matthew, in this list, you'll notice at the last verse, there's this neat 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. He's making a different point. But the point would be Matthew takes the liberty to skip some people. He'll mention a granddad and not mention the son and then mention the grandson. He'll skip some names. And so Matthew's put this list together with all the people he wants to put on there. And then you ask that question of, if that's the case, Matthew includes some names you would imagine we would have left out. For example, in Matthew's list, you'll notice that five women appear. That's unheard of in genealogies. 
If you go back and read the Old Testament genealogies, if you read the others of that time, there were never women mentioned. It was this dad begat this son who begat this son who begat this son, and on and on the list went. And yet Matthew includes women, and not just women. Which women? What kind of women? And what stories do these women trigger? For example, verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Who's Tamar? Matthew doesn't have to mention women. None of the genealogies do, but he mentions Tamar. For the sake of time, I won't give you the whole story. If you want to go, you read back to Genesis. And in Genesis, there's a very sordid tale. Uh, I won't tell you all the details of it. You can read it yourself. But essentially, uh, Jacob has these 12 sons. And one of the sons is a man named Judah, one of the tribes of Israel. And Judah's got these sons. Well, he's got this one son who marries this woman named Tamar. He's an evil man. The Lord kills him. And so Tamar in that day has no children. Well, in that day, to be a widow was to be the most defenseless person in the world. You, you couldn't survive without a husband or a son. And so you were left open, susceptible to all kinds of mistreatment. And so in God's provision for widows, there was a law that said your brother of the deceased man could marry you, to care for you, to provide sons for you. Well, the story goes that Judah gives a son, but that son is evil, and he dies as well. Judah won't do the right thing anymore, won't give any more sons. So this woman, defenseless, helpless, comes up with a strategy. And in this sordid tale, she dresses up as a prostitute. Her father-in-law, Judah, doesn't know about it, sleeps with his daughter-in-law. She gives birth to these twin babies. It's not Israel's finest moment. And yet it's included here so that Matthew reminds me, Tamar is one of Jesus' grandmothers. She gets pulled into the story, into this family tree. And then the text continues. I could tell you more stories. Verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Rahab was a Canaanite woman. Who are the Canaanites? The Canaanites were sort of the sworn enemies of Israel, particularly because they were idol worshipers, and part of their idol worship was to offer their sons and daughters as sacrifices to the gods. You know, if you read the Old Testament, you go, God is going to wipe out the Canaanites. That's a horrible thing. It's hard, but I want you to consider this. Just a few years ago, we heard of a nation on the other side of the world using chemical weapons on their own people. We heard of them doing it for one year, and we were ready to drop a bomb because of the atrocity of that. Right? Because it's, it's a gas to us that that kind of thing would be done to its own people, to its children. God had watched the Canaanites slaughter their sons and daughters for 400 years and put up with it for 400 years before he told the Israelites, you're going to go and wipe out the Canaanites. And this people is who this woman Rahab is from. She's a Canaanite, but not just a Canaanite. The text would tell us she's a prostitute among the Canaanites. And one day, this prostitute of the Canaanites hears word that Yahweh, Israel's God, has parted the Red Sea and parted the Jordan River and is now headed to her city, Jericho. And she, in this extraordinary act of faith, hides the Israel spies. And so much so that the New Testament will talk of it as an act of faith for us to remember. And this Canaanite woman, who had a past you would perhaps want to forget, 
gets pulled in. Pulled in where? Into Israel. But not just into Israel. All the way in to becoming another one of Jesus' grandmothers. Or then you read after that of Ruth in verse 5, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And I won't tell you more here for the sake of time, but if you read the story, Ruth is a Moabite. Who are the Moabites? Moabites were the descendants of Sodom. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, perhaps you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, these wicked cities that God literally lit up and blew up. She's a Moabite. And where did Moab come from? You can read that too in Genesis, and you'll read this sordid tale about this man named Lot who had two daughters and they had no way to continue the line and so get their dad drunk and sleep with him and out of that night comes Moab. It's, a, it's the kind of story in the family tree that you'd want to forget. And yet Matthew pulls her in and this Moabite gets pulled into Israel and not just into Israel but all the way in so that she's a grandmother of Jesus. And then you get another one in verse 6, maybe the most famous of all the stories. In verse 6, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Did you hear how he phrased that? By the wife of Uriah. Matthew could have named her, couldn't he? It's not like Matthew didn't know the name. He could have easily said Solomon, which was from David and Bathsheba, but he doesn't. Why? He adds in a detail so that you, you don't forget a story that you might otherwise want to forget. It's not just David and Bathsheba's son, Solomon. It's Solomon came from David and by the wife of Uriah. Why? To remind us that Solomon was born out of an adulterous affair. That Solomon was the result of something that shouldn't have been. If you remember the story, David, the king of maybe all the kings up until that point, the man after God's own heart, this good king. If you remember the story, or if you've never heard it, he's up on a tower watching out in the time when other kings were at battle. <clears throat> he sees a woman bathing. He's drawn to her, inquires who she is. Word comes back, this is Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. If you didn't know better, you'd just think Uriah, just a man in Israel. But when you read the account, you know that Uriah is one of David's closest friends. He's not just a stranger within the empire. David had this elite force, sort of like his Green Beret, his Delta Force called the Mighty Men. These were 30 men or so that risked their neck and lives for David time and time again, so loyal that they'd give up their life for the king. It was one of his best friends. And that night, the text says, he took Uriah's wife. And slept with her. And in this sordid tale that you'd think was some HBO show. He sleeps with her, impregnates her. And then when that comes out, he tries to cover it up through this conspiracy. And has his best friend killed. And thinks he's going to get away with it. Except that the Lord sees what no one else saw. And we're reminded, Solomon, born to David by the wife of Uriah. Another story you'd imagine you'd want to forget, and Matthew draws it in to say she's been pulled in so that she's one of Jesus' grandmothers. You see this list? It's not just women. They're Gentile women. They're Canaanites. They're Moabites. They're, they're women that would have been held as outcasts and outsiders. You think in that day, do you know that these women would not have been allowed even to enter into the temple? 
A Moabite would have never even been allowed to come to the temple where Yahweh was, and yet God has pulled this Moabite past the temple all the way to be a grandmother of Jesus. God has pulled these outsiders and these outcasts and these people of the nations and these foreigners in. He's pulled these people with these terrible stories. He's pulled the outsiders in because Jesus came for outsiders. He's pulled the outcasts in because Jesus came for outcasts. In fact, the Son of Man came in order to become the ultimate outcast and the ultimate outsider. Because the one who was born would one day be put outside the city and he would be cast out as a son so that even his father turns his face away. Alone and out, he would die so that he could bring outsiders and outcasts in. You know, this story is telling us, it's not just the women, by the way. The men in the story don't fare any better. Even the best of them, David, has done the worst of them. Even the best of them, Abraham, you can go read his stories, has done the worst of them. And and it's showing us from the best to the worst, they all need Jesus. You're not so good that you don't need him, and you're not so bad that you can't have him. All of us need and get Jesus. You look at this list. There's bad fathers, there's liars, there's cheaters, there's sexual sinners of every stripe. There's incest, there's adultery, there's men who slept with prostitutes, women who prostituted themselves, there's men who offered their children as sacrifices, there's worshipers of idols, there's idolaters and adulterers and murderers, and all these people we would have left out. Jesus calls them family. You know what's amazing? The gospel, the good news, is Jesus is not ashamed of his family. In fact, Hebrews 2 says, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Jesus is not ashamed of his family. And no matter who you are, and no matter what you've done, and no matter what your story is, you can be pulled into Jesus' family as well, adopted in as well, and Jesus is not ashamed of you. I need to hear that in my soul. And I imagine you need to hear that in your soul. No matter what it is, no matter what the world would say, Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus would stand up next to you any moment of any day. The whole world could be against you. And Jesus would have with no shame say, she's with me. He's with me. Jesus is not ashamed of his family. Christmas is Jesus saying to Tamar, I'm not ashamed that you're my grandmother. Christmas is Jesus saying to a Canaanite prostitute, I am not ashamed that you're my grandmother. That the grace of God has pulled people in who were outsiders and outcasts and pulled us in because Jesus came from sinners, because Jesus came for sinners. This is who he's come from. This is who he's come for. So Matthew 1 steps us into this Christmas season. And as we begin this season, Christmas is for us. A new beginning, a fresh start better than January 1. You can have a new genesis, a new creation, be born again through Jesus Christ. Christmas is for us good news, not a good advice. Don't go from here determined to be more nice than naughty. Go from here believing that Jesus Christ did something for you, did something for you, and let that change how you live. Go from here with the good news that Jesus Christ came from sinners like us 
and came for sinners like us. And let Jesus Christ this season be the deepest satisfaction to the deepest longing of your heart. He is the one you've been waiting for. Let's come again to Jesus. Let's pray to him together now. Father, we ask and pray as we step into this new season that the good news of Christmas that we hear for perhaps the first time or the 10,000th time would ring fresh in our ears as good news. We pray even today that you would remind us that this whole thing, this whole relationship with you is not about what we do, but what you have come to do for us. That you came for people like us, with pasts like ours, with stories like ours. And what brings us shame, Jesus is not ashamed of us. And that Jesus gave his life for us. And moreover, we pray that in this season, we would not put the burden of our whole being on anyone or anything, asking it to be our ultimate satisfaction. We know that everything we unwrap will leave us longing again, but we pray that you would give us grace like Simeon to be satisfied in Christ. Come do this and a thousand more things and the acts of obedience that will result from us understanding all this. Do this and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.